Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today I am joined by the wonderful Ted Dynan who conducts fascinating research into the gut-brain axis. While it is a relatively new field of research, particularly in relation to studies being done on humans, it is of increasing importance and interest to public health. So, welcome Ted. First things first, it would be really great to hear a little bit about yourself and the career path you've taken. Right. Well, uh, I studied medicine in my hometown, which is here in Cork. Um, And after that, I went to New York. I kind of went off to kind of study, I suppose, research technique. I was working in electrophysiology, single cell electrophysiology for a while. Um, Spent quite a bit of time in London then. Came back to Dublin. My first kind of faculty post was in Trinity College in Dublin where I spent a few years, and although my interest clinically, I, I'm clinically a psychiatrist, and my interest clinically has always been in depression, but when mm. I was in Trinity College in Dublin, um, I became friendly with a gastroenterologist there, a guy called Nap Keeling. He trained in Tommies in London. And Nap was always of the view that the brain-gut axis was important. He was one of the few people at the time, this was back in the, the late 80s, and he was of the view that the brain got access was important. Yeah. And he and I published a few papers. Frankly, I'd say they were largely ignored in the literature. I, I don't think they were cited that much. Oh. But at the time, the brain got access wasn't a major research area, but microbes within the gut were excluded from analysis because at that stage, people just thought, look, there are bacteria in our intestine. They don't do us any harm, but they don't do us any good either. So what's the point in really even considering them? So at the time, we were just considering the brain got access. Now, I, I was abroad for years. At one stage, I, I was uh, chair of psychiatry and clinical neurosciences at, at Barts and, and the London Medical School. And when I came back to Ireland, I came back to this post here in Cork about 18 or 19 years ago. And a group of us set up APC, what is now called APC Microbiome Ireland. And my objective at the time really was to explore how gut microbes might influence. And I say might because we didn't have solid evidence, might influence how the brain works. And really over the last 18 years with my colleague, John Crine, who's the neuroscientist and a very good friend of mine, John and I have really, you know, built up a research team and we explore how gut microbes influence brain function and how this might be relevant mainly for stress-related psychiatric disorders but I think it's relevant in relation to neurology as well. So when people refer to the gut being the second brain what does this mean to you? I think it's really really unclear because people have very different meanings of that. 
when we talk about stress, in general, until relatively recently, people spoke about the role of cortisol and stress mm. and adrenaline and stress because they're two of the very important hormones that come from the adrenal glands. Cortisol comes from the adrenal cortex and adrenaline comes from the medulla. And the main focus of stress-related research for decades was the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Now, we've come to recognize that the gut microbiota is actually part of the stress system. Right. And I think, you know, when we talk about the second brain or the enteric nervous system, it's a complex enough neuronal network and it's involved in sending signals to the brain. Of course, the brain does send signals back down to the enteric nervous system as well. So you do have a lot of crosstalk between that neuronal network, that collection of neurons around the gut and the brain. And I think that description of it being a second brain, I think, is a, is, is a reasonable one. So if the gut is our second brain and it's a place that we produce a lot of serotonin, does this infer that if our gut is damaged we are more likely to suffer with stress or mood imbalances or be more susceptible to developing potentially even more psychiatric conditions? That's an interesting question Hannah and I think the answer to it simply is yes. Uh, the you know the building block of serotonin in the human brain is tryptophan the amino acid. Now we have very limited storage capacity for tryptophan in our brains. Mm -hmm. So we need a constant supply of tryptophan crossing the blood-brain barrier into our brain in order to maintain normal serotonin transmission. Mm -hmm. Now, serotonin, as you rightly say, is related to mood, but it also regulates sleep patterns. It regulates eating patterns. And it used to be thought that all of the tryptophan that entered the bloodstream came from the diet. Mm. And it certainly is true that some of it does come from the diet, but it's also clear that certain microbes, we, we showed, for instance, that bifidobacteria can produce tryptophan. Mm. So microbes within the gut also produce this key, you know, molecule, this, this amino acid. Um, and, you know, in situations of stress, the metabolism or the production of tryptophan can be altered. Now, I'll give you the most dramatic, I suppose, case I can think of. About five or six years ago, I decided to look at patients who were attending my clinic at Cork University Hospital. My, my clinic is largely consists of people who are depressed. Mm. So I took a group of people who were clinically depressed, and I took a group of age and sex match healthy controls. And what we essentially found was that the microbiota of the depressed patients lacks diversity. So there's a lack of richness of microbes in the intestine, brought about probably by stress because most patients who suffer from depression do so within the context of stress. And that microbiota alteration is associated with altered tryptophan metabolism. So the metabolism of tryptophan in depression is altered and the gut microbiota lacks, lacks diversity. Does it also go the other way that if we aren't 
on a diet that actually supports our health, then it is a greater risk factor. That's correct. Um, yeah, no, no doubt about that, that, you know, if we have a bad diet and, and the classic Western diet that's evolved in recent decades is not a good diet. I mean, it contains a lot of processed foods, a lot of fast food, yeah. a lot of red meat. Um, and that results in, I suppose, what gastroenterologists would call a dysbiosis or an alteration of the gut microbiota, a negative alteration of the gut microbiota. So, you know, if we wish to improve our gut microbiotas, unquestionably, the most extensively studied good diet is a Mediterranean diet. Right, yeah. Um, and exercise also, aerobic exercise, has a very positive benefit on the gut microbiota. Mm. So what are the characteristics of a good diet? Well, I would suggest that having a lot of fruit and vegetables, which contain a lot of prebiotic fibers, would be very good for one's diet. Um, having a lot of fermented food in one's diet is definitely good for one. Fish is very good. If one eats fish, it certainly is extremely good because it contains polyunsaturated fatty acids. Yeah. I think avoiding too much red meat, I think that red meat is just not good for our general well-being. It's a source of protein, but it is not good for our general well-being. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, that type of Mediterranean or modified Mediterranean diet is optimal for our gut microbiota. And as you mentioned, you know, exercise that's certainly an important component as well. I mean, if we exercise vigorously, aerobic exercise has a positive benefit also. Can we change our gut brain axis just by our lifestyle factors or do we need other alternative medications to help? I, I do think that, you know, if one is reasonably healthy, Mm. and not on medication and not having concomitant diseases, that one can radically alter one's gut microbiota wow. by going on a healthy diet and by exercising regularly. Now, the problem, I suppose, that many older people have is that, you know, concomitant illnesses, you know, cardiovascular diseases, hypertension, you know, diabetes and so forth, they impact the gut microbiota negatively. And it's estimated now that about 80% of all the drugs that are prescribed by doctors have an impact on the gut microbiota. And in, and in the majority of cases, not in all, because we've actually found one or two drugs that actually positively impact the gut microbiota, mm -hmm. but the overwhelming majority of, of these drugs negatively impact the gut microbiota. So, the, but if, if we're young or relatively young and relatively healthy, undoubtedly diet and exercise are enough to positively impact the gut microbiota. Wow, that's quite a scary realisation that 80% of medications can actually damage yeah. such an important organ in our body. Indeed. I was actually wondering when you were speaking whether those people who are taking antidepressants to support their mood, do you have any research on whether that's impacting your gut microbiome? Indeed, you know, that, that's a very interesting question. And it's one that the literature isn't really answering in a very yeah. clear cut way at the moment. Um, 
there are a number of studies looking at the gut microbiota in depression. Mm. Um, and But what data we've got in relation to antidepressants and the gut microbiota largely comes from rodent studies. And there are very few clear-cut studies that would say that the gut microbiota is positively or indeed negatively impacted by by antidepressants. I mean, interestingly enough, one of the few drugs that we've come across that has a positive benefit on on the gut microbiota is a drug that I suppose, you know, in the UK and in Ireland for bipolar patients is quite widely prescribed, and that's lithium. Right. And, and a percentage of people with bipolar illness do extremely well on lithium. And some people, it's, a use, it's useless. I mean, and it's impossible at baseline to say, are they going to benefit or are they not? I mean, I've seen patients and, you know, they've went on lithium and you mightn't see them again for 15 or 20 years because they've just remained so well. Wow. And there's other people and they might as well be taking chocolate as for all the good <laughs> that the, the, the lithium has done them. It's of no benefit at all. But lithium does seem to increase the diversity of the gut microbiota. But we don't really have a clear analytic understanding of what individual antidepressants do to the gut microbiota. Right. Yeah, I think it, it does seem to look like this research is in its infancy. So it's, it's very exciting, but there's still a lot to be done. But I do think, you know, this year, it really does seem like lots and lots of people are starting to take the gut very, very seriously in terms of looking at preventing illness. I think seeing everything unfold with COVID-19, everyone's very interested in those people that have got disorders that have made them much more susceptible to being unwell for longer and those who aren't. What I would love to know, I know you touched on it briefly, but whether you could share some advice on certain foods that are good for the gut and can really fuel that serotonin making. I think you mentioned one earlier, but are are there more than one? No, I think that, you know, if we want to have a healthy gut, Mm. um, there are certain bacteria in the intestine like bifidobacteria and lactobacilli that we know are good for our general health, including our mental health. Um, We know that taking in prebiotic fibers promotes the growth of good bacteria. I suppose the most widely studied prebiotic fiber is inulin. Mm-hmm. And you find inulin in things like Jerusalem artichoke. You find it in leeks and celery and onions, um, in, a, in a variety of vegetables. And that does two things. One, it promotes the growth of good bacteria. But it's secondly, inulin, when it's metabolized by gut microbes, results in the production of what are termed short-chain fatty acids, And the short-chain fatty acids are butyrate, propionate, and acetate. And they get into the bloodstream, and they influence organs in the body, including the brain. So I think, you know, vegetable sources of of prebiotic fibers are very important. I mean, we published quite a large paper in biological psychiatry there about two or three years ago showing that prebiotic fibers are are, are prebiotics had a major impact on stress in animals and then subsequently uh, uh, colleagues of ours in oxford um 
published a study in humans, again looking at prebiotic fibers and showing that the morning cortisol level was decreased when the subjects took the prebiotic fiber. Now, if we're stressed, the time of day when our cortisol levels tend to be most elevated is when we wake first thing in the morning. And what the Oxford group showed was that prebiotic fibers reduced the morning cortisol level. So there's no doubt about it that if you take in prebiotic fibers in your fruit and vegetables, that it, it will impact positively on the gut microbiota and on one's capacity to deal with stress. Now, I mentioned fermented foods earlier on, and clearly fermented foods are a source of good good microbes, um, you know, uh, and I suppose, you know, if you go into one's supermarket nowadays, there's a far greater variety of fermented foods than there ever were previously. I mean, I suppose, you know, you went into your average, you know, supermarket in London 10 years ago, and it was yogurt was probably the only <laughs> fermented food. But of course, you know, you know, of kefir, kombucha, you know, they're, they're a whole variety because, and they come from all different cultural backgrounds because, most cultures have a form of fermented food. Um, a colleague of mine here in Cork recently published a paper where he got fermented foods from various parts of Africa and looked at, you know, what good bacteria were in them, you know, but there were very different types of foods we probably wouldn't eat in the West, but everywhere, essentially, most cultures have fermented foods. Um, and I think taking in fermented foods it's a very good source of good bacteria. You know, if, if you if you eat yogurt regularly, it's a very good source of lactobacilli, mm. but likewise with kefir and kombucha and so forth. And I think one thing to pick up on there is that fermented foods don't have to be really expensive and health food. You, you know, you can make sauerkraut and kimchi yourself. You know, it doesn't need to be going to your local supermarket or ordering on a cardo and spending five pounds on a pot of this. You can do it yourself. And actually, it's relatively easy to do that. I, I think that you, you put your finger on a really important point there. You know, a good diet does not have to be an expensive diet. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was giving a lecture in London last year or the year before, and a GP from an inner city borough in London, a rather poor area, one that I know very, very well because I've worked there previously. And she uh, basically chastised me and said that her, her patients, you know, didn't have the money to kind of, you know, adopt the sort of diet that I was advocating. And really, I, I don't think you need an awful lot of money. I, I, sadly, I think it's an educational issue and not a financial issue. You know, fish can be very, I, I like fish personally, but, you know, f buying fish, if you go for certain types of fish, as, as any of your viewers will know, can be quite expensive. Yes. But on the other hand, you know, in season, mackerel is hardly an expensive fish. Mm. And yet it probably has the, the highest level of polyunsaturated fatty acids of any fish that's out there. So I, I think, you know, 
you, you can, as you rightly point out, you can you can make um, you know many fermented foods for virtually nothing, yeah. um, and they have very positive health benefits. Yeah, and those foods like onions, leek, celery. Those foods right now, particularly, are so easy to get our hands they on. Are. I think it, I totally agree. It's about education and also potentially about time and, have, and being able to think about it. Um, but definitely, these things aren't impossible to gain access to. One of the last things I wanted to touch on was the extent to which you think nutrition will play a role in the future treatment of mental health in general, you know, from stress, low mood to the more psychiatric conditions. And then on the back of that, whether we could just hear what psychobiotics are, are they the use of probiotics for psychiatric conditions? Or is there something a little bit more in that? Undoubtedly, you know, stress-related disorders have a very high prevalence in our society today. And, you know, when you look at something like depression, depression in the elderly is particularly, the levels are particularly high. I mean, as we age, the levels of depression go up. And it's interesting to note that, you know, healthy elderly people retain a microbiota that is very similar to your average healthy adult But elderly people have a tendency to lose diversity in the microbiota. Mm. And when they do that, two things occur. One is frailty tends to follow very rapidly. Mm. And secondly, it increases the likelihood of developing disorders like depression. So I think, you know, we all want to age healthily and to age healthily requires maintaining diversity of the gut microbiota. And that maintains, that, that is, in order to do that, one needs to maintain a diverse diet as one ages and obviously exercises as well. Now, you mentioned psychobiotics, and it, it's a term that I introduced in the literature a few years ago, and it seems to have stuck. Psychobiotics are bacteria which when we ingest them in adequate amounts, have a positive mental health benefit. Right. Now, most of the work that's been done on psychobiotics to date has been done on lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. There may be other bacteria out there that are positive, have a positive mental health benefit, but so far they really haven't been extensively studied. It's lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. Now, I'm certainly of the view that for milder forms of depression, that these good bacteria can have a very positive mental health benefit. No question about it. I'm not suggesting that for very severe forms of depression Mm -hmm. that they're the answer. But when you look at society at large, low mood is common. It's usually not terribly severe, the problem, but it is a a definite problem that people have low mood. And I think that psychobiotics, the data is constantly accumulating to support the view that these psychobiotic bacteria can have a positive mental health benefit. Now, one of the early studies that was done in this area was a study that we published a few years ago. I think it was in the journal Translational Psychiatry. 
where we looked at a bacteria. Now, the strain of bacteria was a bif, it, it, it was a bif longum, was the specific strain. Mm. And we did a study in healthy subjects. And what we showed, and it was placebo controlled, so the subjects didn't know whether they were taking the probiotic or whether they were taking placebo. Mm. But what we showed was that the awaking cortisol, which is the, the, the level of cortisol that's associated with stress because it's elevated when we are stressed, the, the probiotic bacteria reduced the levels of waking cortisol. And when the subjects were taking the probiotic or psychobiotic as opposed to placebo, they reported themselves as feeling less stressed. So their cortisol levels were, were lower and they reported themselves as feeling less stressed. And interestingly enough, we were actually able to show that the electrical activity in their brain was altered in response to ingesting this particular probiotic. Now, there are at least one or two other studies out there now using functional MRI imaging of the brain, showing that brain imaging alters. I think we were the first group to show that the electrophysiological activity of the brain altered when people ingested psychobiotic bacteria. This is so fascinating. It's really exciting. Despite this being in its infancy, it does look like the future of nutrition and protecting the microbiome is going to play a huge part in preserving mental health and improving it. Thank you so much for My answering pleasure. the questions with so much thought and depth and I really, really hope that as the research develops, it will be really enlightening and helpful for people. And hopefully, maybe in the future, we can have another chat. Definitely. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed learning about the gut-brain axis on Psych Summaries today. There will be more on this subject in upcoming episodes, so do stay tuned for more. In the meantime, you can head to the information to find links to explore TED and the APC's work further. If you enjoyed the episode and want to keep up with Psych Summaries, please do subscribe, give feedback and follow the channel on Instagram at Psych Summaries. Thanks for listening. See you next time.